you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans, to chapter 1, this morning we come again to verses 16 and 17, where the Apostle is writing to this diverse church in this ancient capital of the civilized world. The last time we met, the Apostle Paul said that he was unashamed, unashamed of the gospel that he would preach it in this ancient city, this city of sophistication, this word of the power of God for salvation. So let us turn our attention once again to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. May he give us understanding and grow us up in Jesus. For I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Thus far the word of the Lord. Let us pray again together. Lord, as we have heard the scriptures, we pray that you would subdue us under its ministry. O oh Lord, that you would conform us into the likeness of Jesus. O oh Lord, that you would help us to be the people that we ought to be. Oh, Lord, that you would help us to love the things that we ought to love. And that, Lord, you would take our minds to yourself to consider heavenly things. Indeed, that we might consider your eternal attributes and character. Oh, Father in heaven, minister to us. Pastor us, oh, good shepherd. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come back to this passage of Scripture that we were in just two weeks ago, you may remember that the intention was to preach a normal three-point sermon. But the book of Romans just isn't like that. It's a book that is, well, one of the deepest and highest books of the entire Bible. It is not a systematic theology, although it contains very much of it. It's also not a book of biblical theology, though it is biblical and it has so much theology. It's a letter, a pastoral letter intended for the raising up of Christians to be like Jesus. It's very simple in that way. And last time we met, again, we looked at the Apostle Paul, that as he wrote these people in this ancient capital, one that was truly the inheritor of classical wisdom and philosophy and learning that the apostle wrote that he wanted to come and preach to them and that the message he would preach was a message of good news, specifically the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he said, I'm unashamed of it. You know, that's a strange thing for somebody to say. I'm coming to say something to you and the thing that I'll say, I'm not ashamed to say it. You may remember last week I asked you as Christians to consider your own hearts. Are you ashamed of the gospel message? Because you see, the gospel says things that the world does not know. 
things that the world hates, things that the world will inevitably deny. Its propositions are supernatural. They reflect the character of a transcendent God rather than the character of fallen men. It's different. It's not like us. It's certainly not the way we would do things. And in this passage, these two verses, Paul gives reasons for why he's not ashamed. That first thing that he said in verse 16 is that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to any who will believe. That's a big thing. I'm not ashamed of it. Why? Because it is what God has ordained to save a fallen humanity if they believe. That's huge. Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of it because it is life or death news. It divides heaven and hell. It is that one thing, that one thing that reconciles God and man in his fallen condition. It makes good sense when you put it that way that Paul's not ashamed of it. But you remember that its claims are unique and they're not affirming of us. They affirm God. They affirm his plans, his, his method, the giving of a Messiah born of a virgin, a thing inconceivable by the mind of natural men and a thing, well, utterly unprovable by the dictates of modern science. But nonetheless true. Miraculous, supernatural, but essential to the doctrine of the gospel. Moreover, it's not just that sort of claim. It's a claim that doesn't flatter us. It says that we're sinners. It's a claim that also says we need something that we can't provide for ourselves. We need someone. We need a redeemer. Because our sins make this great division between us and God. What's more, it says that there was one that came. He was a perfect man, not like us, in his perfection. Like us in our humanity, though. He lived under the law, according to the law, perfect. That's an offensive claim, I think, for most people. I think all of us would like to be perfect. We all feel the need, the desire to be perfect. And I certainly think we all have different opinions of what perfection is very much lower than the definition of God for perfection, right? We do. But you see, the gospel says more than that, doesn't it? It goes on and it tells us that not only did Jesus live a perfect life, but it says he died in our place as a criminal. That's certainly not how the world would design it. Not how we would design it. Not how the the apostles themselves would have designed it. You might recall they were looking for a revolutionary, just like the people that were gathered around Jesus by the Sea of Galilee. They got fish and a prayer and much bread, but they wanted a king to put a crown upon his head and to put him on a throne in an earthly kingdom. But what they got was a Messiah who would die for them. A sacrifice. A pure lamb. That's, that's not how we would write it. It's to the world foolishness. But it is, according to God, the way he has chosen to powerfully redeem a people who hate him. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that. I will preach it with a courageous heart filled with faith. 
And he goes on in our passage, and this morning he says a, a thing more. The second reason that he is not ashamed, and it is this. He says, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. God himself discloses his eternal character of holiness, righteousness, goodness, truth. And we can continue to give words to this through the gospel. That's what Paul is saying. His second reason is ultimately to simply say this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because in it you see God. And this morning, that's what I want us to consider. I had every intention for us to have three points in the sermon, but we'll just study the first. I'm going to give them to you. Next week, we will go right back to this. We will finish this, Lord willing. God has a higher plan. He'll do what he wills, but Nick wants to go through it all next week. The three points, the first of which we'll study this morning, that in the gospel, we see revealed... A righteous God who punishes sin. Now that's an unpopular message, isn't it? We see a righteous God who punishes sin. Secondly, we'll study next week. We see in the gospel a righteous God who redeems sinners. And then thirdly, we see a righteous God who restores life. A righteous God who punishes sin, that's this week. A righteous God who redeems sinners. A righteous God who restores life. And so let's look again at the text. Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul, verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. God reveals himself in the gospel, but specifically his righteousness. It's self-disclosure, this word. It's the word that we get apocalypse from that's brought its way into the English language. This tearing back of a veil, this unveiling, as it were, of this person. Paul is saying the righteousness of God in the gospel, the righteousness of God, if you can get your head around it, that that's revealed in the gospel. We have to wrestle with that. That makes us ask a lot of questions, at least if we're good Bible readers. One, it's got to be, what is the gospel? If we're really talking about that. And then two, how in the world does that even have relevance to his righteousness? You see, these two things are connected. And I'll tell you very forthrightly, when Paul says he's not ashamed of this fact, he's saying a big thing. Because people wrestle with the goodness of God in relationship to the gospel. They do. Believers and unbelievers all alike do wrestle with the issue for a variety of reasons, but not the least of which is that people ask the simple question, 
How could a good God let evil things happen? Oftentimes, this is on the lips of an atheist. If there is a God, if he is a good God, confronting the claims of the scriptures and of the Christian religion, if there is a good God, how could he happen? Here's the classic philosophical question of the problem of evil. It's simple as that. It conceives of a divine God who is transcendent. He's in a different place, full of power, And in his divinity, he is altogether perfect. He conceives of that. And they ask the simple question, if that exists, if he exists, if this personal God exists, how is it possible that there are atrocities that are perpetrated? And some people say, well, I don't like questions like that. Friends, it's just honesty. If you've never asked the question, you're just not honest. You're not looking at the world around you. I don't say that to be in your face or confrontational, but it's reality. There's suffering in the world. There are evil things in the world. We can think of world history, and it is filled with an entire litany of evil and wicked events on a large scale, not to even consider the wicked events that happen And the regular goings-on of the life of normal people that are isolated. Maybe it doesn't even make the news. Or maybe, let me simply say, it doesn't even consider often the wickedness that is in the recesses of our hearts and the things that we commit with our minds and our intentions against the Lord. You know, thinking of recent history, we, at least all of us, should have heard some telling of a Holocaust-like persecution of Uyghur Muslims in China today, right now. That should bother you. And you say, well, we're Christians. Why should we care for Muslims? I'll say it like this. They're people made in the image of God. You must care about them if you care about the God of heaven. Indifferent of the false profession that they make. Also, in recent news, just a few years ago, it broke that a regime in Syria unleashed chlorine gas, sarin gas, sulfur mustard gas upon a civilian population because a leader wanted to stay in power and keep his people obedient to his dictates. That's why we have so many Syrian neighbors. That's why a group of Syrian men moved my family into a new home last week. At least in part, it's because they knew people who were attacked by their government and killed or seriously injured by these wicked atrocities. There's the human sex trade, and we live not so far from it. Here in Stuttgart. People taken as children, people taken from their home, people who sell themselves into it, who are traded around like cattle to be used as an object by other people, exploited. That's evil because they are people made in the image of God. The culture of abortion, where day by day, hundreds of thousands 
of innocent and silent children are ripped from the wombs of their mothers and murdered at the hands of wicked men. Millions over decades. Millions a quiet holocaust. Wicked and evil perpetrated against people. Humans made in the image and after the likeness of the eternal God of heaven. These are terrible things, and I don't think there's a person in the world that could simply question it at all. These are unquestionably evil. They are horrifically wicked. And yet, there's a God in heaven who is good, and these things happen. And the question that we have to ask is, where is God in all of this? How can he be good if this sort of thing goes without punishment? Not to speak of the horrors of the Holocaust perpetrated in this country or the multitude throughout the centuries that have occurred on the European continent. How can God be good? How can God be good? How can He be righteous? And you might think to yourself, well, you know, I don't know if this is a comment or a complaint or a question that can even coexist with faith. Can it? Because some people would say ultimately in their own hearts and minds, they say these things are inconsistent. They can't coalesce. I think they can. The Bible offers answers. I think this is the same thing that dominated the heart of the psalmist. Again and again and again, if you read the Psalms, as he said things like this in verse to be sung in worship. Why, O Lord, do the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer? Why, O Lord, do the wicked prosper when the righteous suffer? He's crying out for justice. That's what's at the bottom of the question. Instead of just asking, how can there be a good God? Or how can there be any God? The heart of the question is this. Where is justice for these things? These are not just simply the cries of a people who themselves have been wounded. These are the cries of a people who feel deeply that wrong things should not go unpunished. Does God care? Does he really care about sin? Does he really care about evil? And I think we could just simply say those words are synonyms for one another. Does he do anything about evil or is he just a transcendent God hidden behind the clouds, silent within himself and impotent to do a thing? Well, I think the Bible, God's own word, can tell us very directly that if within the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, that the word would speak to this. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, as God spoke to his creatures, placing them in a garden filled with food, filled with good things, for they were still righteous and had not yet done anything good or evil in heart or mind. God's word said this, giving them restrictions. 
He said, you may eat of every tree of the garden except or but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat it, you shall certainly die. Almost the first phrase upon the lips of God. Think of this like this. It's the father who is in the room when the child is delivered, holding the kid in his arms and simply says, Son, you can have everything in the pantry, but let me say, if you touch the Oreos, I'm taking you out. Right? Just want to let that be clear. If you transgress me, if you break my word, the punishment is death. People say, oh, that's arbitrary. This, this thing in the garden, whatever the fruit was, whether it was an apple, a pear, a fig, whatever it is, the taking of it, it's, it's arbitrary. It's, it's just fruit. Why would anybody not give this to a child? That's not the point. The point is a heart that does what it wants against the will of God. And let me simply say, the will of God for his creatures is to live and to prosper Wickedness is an affront to that. It is a breaking of the intention, the word of God, and the Lord has sentenced it. And the sentence for evil and sin is nothing less than death. God's not indifferent. He has spoken as a judge who sits on high. The 145th Psalm, verse 20. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. God is not indifferent to sin, wickedness, or evil. In fact, the Bible even promises his action. It's not just moral opposition. It is the promise of real, significant, and entire punishment. The language of destruction. The book of Ezekiel, chapter 18, verse 4. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, is mine. The soul who sins shall die. God's not indifferent, friends. Sin and wickedness. God is not indifferent. This word, this book of Ezekiel, the prophecy came to a people who were suffering atrocities. And this is a word of assurance that justice will come. And it will come at the hand of God. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, we'll get there in some weeks, probably months, reality, maybe a year. The wages of sin is death. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, the lips of Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 25, verse 46, Jesus once again, And these will go away to eternal punishment, 
but the righteous into eternal life. God is not indifferent about sin or wickedness or evil or atrocity committed against His people, committed against those who are His image bearers. How does God discern what is wicked, what is evil? It is when His will is rebelled against by word or action in His creatures. Thou shall not kill. It doesn't just say thou shalt not kill. Christians, thou shalt not kill. White Europeans, thou shalt not kill. Asians or this or that or any other. Or even ancient Judaic people. Thou shalt not kill. Period. These things are according to the Word of God. They are dictated in the Word of God. And you should hear with ears open this morning that God is not indifferent to evil, nor is He prevented from acting. The problem of evil is not a problem too big for our God, but a problem that He has answered in the Gospel of His Son, Jesus Christ. You say, but how? Paul's clearly told you this morning that it is His righteousness revealed in the Gospel. His holiness Well, it's in this way. It is in this way that God answers sin, wickedness, and evil. Those things that deserve death. That in the gospel, the seriousness of God to punish sin, to bring justice upon wickedness, is revealed most clearly in the suffering of Jesus. John 3.16, our assurance of pardon this morning. For God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten son. The language of giving doesn't mean like a gift wrapped with a bow upon it. But rather the giving of a sacrificial lamb in the person, the flesh, the body, and the soul of his son hung upon a cross. John 3.16 says this, to put it in different terms or to expound upon it. For God so loved the world that he killed His only begotten Son. That He punished His only begotten Son. That He sacrificed His only begotten Son in the place of any who would believe so that they would live and not die. The Gospel is proof positive that God is righteous because in it He punishes sin. The cross... The cross is the display of the righteous justice of God. It is the truest display that God is not indifferent. The mocking of Christ was punishment. The crown of thorns was punishment. The flogging and beating of the flesh of the Savior was punishment. Punishment. The nails in his hands and his feet was punishment. All of the agony and the torture of the cross where his lungs filled with fluid and he struggled to breathe was punishment. The humiliation that Christ suffered as men walked back and forth wagging their heads was punishment. Turning away of the face of God was punishment. 
The abandonment of the Son upon the cross was punishment. The invisible wrath of God poured out upon him was punishment. The agonizing groan of death as he entrusted his soul into the hands of the Father was punishment. It was punishment for sin and wickedness and evil. How do we make sense of it? Because Jesus was sinless. Isn't that the truth of the gospel that Paul wasn't ashamed of, that we're not ashamed of? It is because God made him to be sin who knew no sin. He made Jesus to bear our guilt on the cross. He was punished in our place. You need to hear this, Christian. This is profoundly important for the security of every Christian. Your sins have been fully punished in the person of Jesus. All of them. The ones you have done, the ones you are doing, and the ones you will do, they hung in Him on the cross, and God poured out His wrath on Jesus fully. There is not an ounce of the wrath of God against your sin that remains. He drank it all. Your sin has been punished in the flesh of Jesus. Why? Because God is holy and he is righteous and a holy God cannot overlook sin. He cannot not punish sin. He must Put it entirely to its end. He is holy and a good God and a just God. Cannot just look away from it and sweep it under the rug. How unjust would he be? Let me put it into these terms. If someone came and in cold blood killed a member of your family and you watched it happen. And the police came, they arrested him, her for that matter, put them in prison. You go to trial, you're sitting there, and there they are, and they're laughing about it, making fun of it. It's little, it's light to them, but they killed your loved one. The judge looks over and says, you know, I'm feeling forgiving today, it's all right, whatever. Yeah, he killed your family, but I forgive him. He could just walk free. You would say, no, justice hasn't been served. That's not okay. It's not correct. It's not right. He deserves punishment. She deserves punishment. Where's justice? And what I'm telling you this morning is that God served justice and righteousness by putting our sins upon his son. That's the very heart of the gospel. The gospel is essentially righteous because our sins were punished in the person of Jesus fully. God is not indifferent to your sins. And as Jesus groaned, God's righteousness was displayed for you and for your forgiveness. Like a veil was taken back. 
And God said, those who will be my children, those who will be seated at my table, they'll only be seated because they're in him. It'll be his righteousness that's theirs, or they can't sit and eat. They're just my enemy. But if he'll die for them, I'll have them. It is a display of his righteous heart. And I'll say, it's not how I would have written it. No, no, I would have made a religion of works and I would have failed and you would fail. It's a religion of grace. It's a gospel of mercy. Of rescue and redemption. The gospel is a display of the righteousness of God for the redemption of God's people. But secondly, it is also a display of the terrifying righteousness of God for unbelievers who remain in their sins, rebellious and unrepentant. It is a horrific display, a a forecast revelation of the torments that are certain to come for those who do evil. It is what justice looks like. And the thing that it looks like is an agonizing death sentence. The gospel is a revelation of the righteousness of God from heaven. And I also want to say to you this morning that it is a thing freely offered to you that if you would believe in Jesus it's very simple not in the things that you do not in the money that you give not in how many services you can attend but simply hoping on him saying I fear the God of heaven I know the things that I've done I'm terrified of the punishment that you're describing I'm terrified of the destruction that would happen at the hand of God I believe what you're saying that God does punish sin I'm afraid of it, and I don't want to bear it. You ask, Pastor, how can I do it? I'll say you can't, but that you would believe in Jesus because he has died in your place. To hide in him, to take refuge behind his cross. Like a great shield, the cross standing between you and the wrath of a holy God that defends you from God. Saves you from Him, the God who righteously punishes evil, sin, and wickedness. It's free to you. It's free to you. Believe on Christ and live. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures and we thank you for your son. We thank you for the goodness of the gospel. Oh, Lord in heaven. Lord, we thank you for the wisdom of your ways. Oh, Lord, the goodness of the cross. Oh, Lord, the freedom of forgiveness that's had in Jesus for us. Father in heaven, I pray that you would minister to us. Lord, help us to not look over the things that we've studied this morning, O Lord, to not look past the truth of your holiness, the truth of your wonderful Son who died for us. Father in heaven, we pray all of these things in Jesus' holy name.
Amen.